0: we're going through the study of Revelation. We've made it halfway through chapter 3. And today, we're going to look at uh, one of the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Today, we're going to be looking at a letter written to the church in Philadelphia. And uh, for those who haven't been here, just a recap. We said that when we started this study, this series, that Revelation has a key verse that really kind of gives an outline of what the book is all about. And this uh, verse is Revelation 119. And uh, Revelation is broken up in three parts. The first section in this verse says, Write the things which you have seen. That was all in chapter 1. This was the vision that John received on the island of Patmos about Jesus. Then it says, Write the things which are. Those are the things that we're looking at today, chapters two and three, where there is a. Uh, it covers the entirety of the church age. Uh, then it says, And then write the things which will take place after this. This is all future events, chapters uh, four through 22. So that's kind of the overall outline of the book. Uh, now that we're looking at. Uh, these letters though, there's something specific that I just want to point out that there's three elements in looking at these letters, three keys to understanding the letters that were written to each church. First, we remind ourselves again that these are timely truths. These churches actually existed. These were real problems that they were facing, uh, real issues they dealt with. And this is God's real evaluation of how they were doing as a church. Uh, Secondly, these are timeless truths, meaning that even though these churches existed 2,000 years ago, the letters are still spiritually relevant to us today as believers in 2023. The Lord is giving to each of these churches a fair, honest evaluation of each of them. And for some, he points out the great things they're doing, the faithful works they've done for him. Uh, For many of them, he points out areas where they're weak in areas that they are not following the Lord in and uh, areas he wants them to correct, to improve in, so that they would grow in him more and more each day. And I don't want you to to hear the the message today or read this, this passage and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. This was only to them. No need to listen. No need to pay attention because we need to examine ourselves, examine our own lives as we read through this passage and say, is the Lord speaking to me? Is the Lord either commending me for something that I do personally, or the church does as a, as a whole well? Or is there areas that the Lord is rebuking and saying, you know what, this is an area you really need to touch upon and really address. And so as we look through these letters, go in with an uh, open eye to see, is the Lord speaking to me through these things? Because these letters are still spiritually relevant to us today. Third thing is that these are timeline, it's a timeline of truth, basically meaning that as we look out, as we zoom out, Uh, after reading all these seven letters, we can see that actually there's a bigger picture. It's a bigger picture of church history that's taking place here. And uh, each church kind of represents a different historical period in time in the church age. So reminding ourselves again, we're looking at the churches in Asia. We read last week about the church in Sardis, and hopefully you can read that, but today we're looking at the sixth letter The sixth letter is addressed to a church 28 miles southeast of Sardis to a church called Philadelphia, the city meaning brotherly love. And uh, just for background, Philadelphia was a prosperous city. Philadelphia had a lush valley that was perfect for agriculture. The city was actually originally established to be a, a center for spreading the Greek culture spreading the Greek language, spreading Greek manners throughout that entire region in Asia. It often was referred to as Little Athens because of that Greek history in it. And along with the Greek history came a lot of the traditions and a lot of the worshiping of pagan gods. A lot of Greek gods were worshiped in this very city. Another interesting fact about Philadelphia, as I was reading, I found that Philadelphia also happened to be a place where there happened to be a lot of powerful earthquakes that happened. On several occasions, the entire city was almost completely demolished. And so people in that city were always prepared at a moment's notice that they would have to just leave the city, find refuge somewhere else, wait till the city was rebuilt, and then come back. And then eventually another earthquake would hit, and they would be scattered again. They would come back into the city, and it kind of was a perpetual thing. But I think the reason it was such a desirable city was not just because of the agriculture, or just because of the, uh, the, the prosperity they had there, but it was also, there was also a major highway that went through there, a major highway connecting one continent to another. Um, it, at the time, it was, it was nicknamed the greatest highway in all the world. And um, so that, so it was an ideal location. It was a central location to have, even despite all these earthquakes, despite all these natural disasters, Philadelphia, as we saw in the previous slide, it was referred to often as the faithful church. It's actually a quite refreshing read to go through because last week we just read about Sardis, the dead church, and then next week we're going to read about Laodicea, this lukewarm church, and so right between those two churches is this healthy, faithful church, and it's actually just a fresh breath of air, you know, to just read this and see what the Lord was able to do through these people and their faithfulness towards the Lord in the work that he laid out before them. This was one of two healthy churches, and it's a reminder that if we are faithful to our mission to God, God can really bless us in our, in our ministry for him. So let's read. This is a, the, the letter to Philadelphia is written in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, one of the other keys that we mentioned when we were going through the book of Revelation is that we need to look, this this is not just revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the key to understanding this book is to look for Christ. This book unveils different aspects of who Jesus is. And they're all just a different picture or a different angle that we see of him that maybe otherwise we didn't see in previous books. And so it's, in each book, it seems as though the Lord introduces himself in a unique way to each church. He addresses himself in a way that pertains to the situation they're going through. And so it's no surprise that we see this also a unique uh, greeting, a unique introduction uh, to the church of Philadelphia. He introduces himself in verse 7 as he who, uh, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So let's just look real briefly at the, uh, the attributes of God that we see, the characters of who Jesus is as he describes himself in this verse. So he describes himself as he who is holy. This is the first attribute we see, that God is holy. And on the surface level, it looks like, okay, he's holy. But really, this speaks of his deity. Jesus tells us through this that he is God. And we know this because in the Old Testament, Isaiah is called by God. And in Isaiah 6, after Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, we see this response. It says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jehovah, the Almighty God, is holy. And here Jesus states that he is holy, which means that Jesus is claiming, is stating that I am God. The title reminds believers that he is God. Only a holy God is qualified to call believers of a life to follow after him, to forsake all other things, to forsake the worldly things, follow after me. Why? Because I'm holy. Only a holy God can ask for that. And, uh, and then not just forsake our lives, but then follow after him in a life of holiness like he is holy. We read about this call in 1 Peter 1. It says, but as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So, this is the Almighty God speaking to us, the Holy One, who's writing this letter. Not only is he holy, but he's also true. He who is true. And this true in the sense that in the midst of a pagan world around them, in the midst of Philadelphia where the Greek culture was spread, they worshiped other gods, they had many gods. Um, God is the only true living God. He was the only one who could say, I am the way. I am the truth, exclusively, and there's no other way except through me. Jesus stands alone as the only one who speaks truth. His message is true. His teachings are life-changing. He alone stands as the one who is trustworthy, as the one who is reliable in all his ways. So he is not only holy, he's true, And also, he is sovereign, as we see in the next verse, in verse 8, or in the next part of that verse, I'm sorry. It says that he is the one who, who has the key of David. David represents the messianic throne, and this key refers to or represents authority. Whoever has a key holds control. Jesus is saying that he is the holder of the key of David. He is our Messiah who came from the line of David, and he alone has sovereign authority over all things. More than that, though, he also, with that key, he opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. Uh, This phrase, interestingly enough, is not the first time this was ever spoken of. This phrase, if you look back to Isaiah, is spoken of in Isaiah 22. And uh, I don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but to recap what happens in the chapter, there was a wicked man named Shebna, Shebna was an officer in the court of Hezekiah. And God judged Shebna and removed him from his position. He demoted him for his prideful, deceptive behavior. And God closed the door on him. And in place of him, God opened the door for Eliakim. Eliakim being a responsible, compassionate man, a man who served the Lord faithfully. And so God closed the door on Shebna. He opened the door on uh, Eliakim. And he gave him full power, full authority. It says in Isaiah 22, verse 22, the key of the house of David will lay on his shoulder and he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. God firmly established Eliakim in a position where he had complete power, complete authority. And so going back to Revelation, as we look at Revelation, the Lord Jesus himself refers to him who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, meaning that Jesus has complete power, complete authority, complete control. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He holds the key, and whatever door he wants to open, he opens it. And whatever door he wants to close, he closes it. If there is some opportunity that for ministry or for service or for a good testimony, he has the power, he has the authority to do so, to open that door. Jesus gives assurance to the Church of Philadelphia that even though you're surrounded by a pagan society that doesn't love me, that doesn't love you, that is trying to close the door on the gospel of Jesus Christ, I still have the power to open and close doors for you according to my will. Nothing is going to thwart my plans. I am in control. No one can stop me from accomplishing my purposes. And so that is, the, that is the author who is writing this letter to the church of Philadelphia. The one who is holy, the one who is true, the one who is sovereign. Now let's look at the strengths that the church in Philadelphia had. The Lord saw the good works of Philadelphia and he praises them for it. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia had a little strength. Now, this could refer to the fact that they were small in number, or it could just refer to the fact that on their own strength, they were weak. Both could be true. But the point is that they were in a position where they realized their own powerlessness. They realized their own weakness. In other words, they were dependent on the Lord. On their own, they were limited, yes. But... With the Lord's help, with the Lord's strength, they could do all things. They relied upon the Lord. And, you know, there's going to come times in our lives where when we're serving the Lord, we may feel inadequate. We may feel overwhelmed. We may feel like we're too small. We're not strong enough to serve him in this way or to be in this ministry. We may, you know, feel like we're not strong enough to endure trials or persecution from the world because of our faith. But God reminds us that when we are weak, he is strong. And uh, the Apostle Paul says this. This It's a great example of God's strength being made evident in our weakness. Remember, Paul had this thorn in his flesh, and Paul pleads three times that the Lord would remove this thorn in his flesh. But the Lord's response to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then he closes it by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The church in Philadelphia realized their weakness. They realized that they needed to depend on the Lord for their strength. And so not only were they dependent on him, another strength was that they were faithful to God's word. They were taught the word of God and they did not depart from it. They stayed true to what they had been taught from an early, uh, early relationship with him. They didn't go away to the worldly ways they stayed true to it the church in philadelphia could faithfully say at the very end of their lives that i like paul have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith they were faithful to god's word the final commendation for them was that they were unashamed he says that you have not denied my name these believers they were unashamed to publicly identify themselves as followers of christ They were unashamed of him and they would not deny the one who saved their souls. And so those are the strengths that we talk about here for uh, for them, dependent on the Lord, faithful to his word, unashamed of who he was and who he is. Now, typically this would be a place where the Lord would transition to talking about the faults um, of a church or areas they needed to improve in. But this church is so healthy, so faithful to the Lord that there's no faults found in them. The Lord has no rebuke for them. The Lord assesses them. He looks through them with his eyes. And uh, they are one of two churches where there was no rebuke. Only Philadelphia and Smyrna were churches where there was no rebuke given to. And because of their faithfulness to the Lord, because of their good works for him, the Lord declares to them, "I, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. This is in keeping with how the Lord just described himself in the previous verse as the one who opens and no one shuts. This means that the Lord was about to open the door for an evangelistic opportunity and no one was going to be able to shut it. These doors of opportunity, these doors of evangelistic outreach, if you will, are spoken of in other places. Paul describes it as he talks to the church in Corinth. He says, In 1 Corinthians 16, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversities, or adversaries, I'm sorry. And again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, furthermore, when I came to Trias to preach the gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. So you see, the Lord, in Paul's case, is able to open doors. And the same is true now with the church in Philadelphia, that there is a door now wide open for them. The Lord has opened this door for the gospel's sake, Now their job is to be faithful to go through that door, to walk through it. As I mentioned, you know that this is a church. This is a church surrounded by worldly, you know, religion of of serving pagan gods, and now the believers there had a great opportunity. God opened the door for them to witness, to share to those unbelieving people around them. Now, this was true in a literal sense for the church in Philadelphia. It it was true that God opened the door for them in that specific area. But it's also particularly true in this period of time in church history. This time in church history came after the Great Reformation, which last week um, was kind of the area where uh, the church in Sardis, that Great Reformation happened during that period of time. In the 1500s, there was a place where true believers, they put their foot down and said, no, we're breaking away from Catholicism. We're rejecting the authority of the Pope. Believers during this time, they pushed that the Bible is the sole authority for all matters. And salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So this is coming off of the the heels of that. Now, this period of time that we're looking at, God is opening the door for the gospel to spread This period in time is roughly 1750 to the 1900s. It's not a specific, perfect cutoff. Some of these periods of time overlap. But roughly, that's when this period of time happened. This time, though, that the Church of Philadelphia is parallel to in our church history is marked by worldwide evangelism and great missionary movements. During this time, there was an era of strong evangelical preaching, Soul-winning began to happen by the masses. You had people like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, who became prominent figures of the Great Awakening in America. You had other people like John and Charles Wesley who started revivals in England and emphasized that Christianity was no longer a formal, outward religion like the Catholic Church had it. Rather, Christianity is about an inward, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You had people who then began to be missionaries, people like William Carey, who had a mission in mind to to reach India. And he was named or nicknamed the father of modern missionary movements. And it led to thousands of people to obey the command of the Lord, as he says in uh, Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. He, he you know, spearheaded that movement of, of encouraging believers to go out and spread out to all the world during this time. And so you can credit people like William Carey. People like Hudson Taylor did the same thing. He went through the open door, the opportunity that God gave him, and he reached places like China to serve there as a missionary. And there are hundreds, if not thousands more I could go on to showcase how God was reviving these areas, how he was winning souls to himself because these men had open doors set before them and they faithfully walked through those doors. You can even think, you know, even though it's uh, more recently, you can think about other ways how God has started revivals, has opened doors, even in our generation today. Uh, just think back a few decades uh, to the 70s. Uh, And you think about people like Billy Graham, the crusades that he was able to have where it's estimated 3.2 million people came to have a personal relationship with the Lord because of his faithful witness in uh, preaching the gospel and telling people to turn their lives over to Christ. God opened the door and this is the result of faithful men and women walking through the door in obedience. I think particularly though, when I, when I read about this section about God opening doors, I'm reminded of a young Dutchman whose name was Brother Andrew. And in 1955, after World War II um, took place, there existed what was called the Iron Curtain. And there was a group of communist countries in Europe, including Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, Soviet Union, all that in the red you see there, was closed off to the Gospel, closed off to people sharing not only just the Gospel, but other things as well, but specifically also the Gospel. And there was this, what was called the Iron Curtain. You see there's a red line dividing the blue and the red, called the Iron Curtain. And um, one day, Brother Andrew took a trip to Poland, which was closed off to the Gospel, And he discovered that there in Poland was a secret group of believers who met at a church underground, and uh, he didn't realize that they were in such desperate need of prayer, support, evangelical tracts, and specifically Bibles. And um, despite this being a so-called iron curtain that prevented people from coming to them, Brother Andrew felt that God had called him and had opened the door for an opportunity for him to deliver Bibles and tracts to these communist countries. And he would go and he would bring his blue Volkswagen Beetle that uh, was loaded with Bibles and gospel tracts. And they were in his trunk. They were in his luggage. They were in the glove box. They were under the seats. They were every which way you could put a Bible. He had a Bible in there. And um, he called it his miracle car, because of the ability to just keep going to and from, trip after trip across these borders to these uh, closed off countries otherwise because of this iron curtain. Brother Andrew, each time he would reach um, the crossing area where there would be border guards, he would pray this exact prayer every time. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture. I wanna take to your children. When you were on the earth, you made the blind to see. Now I pray you make the seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things which you do not want them to see. And Brother Andrew tells of how each time he would cross over the border, there'd be between two to four guards, and they would go one on each side of the car, and they would inspect and look. And there was Bibles all in front of them, and they didn't see them. And they would look the next section, they would look, they couldn't see anything. They looked under the car, looked in the trunk, there was nothing in their eyes that they could see. He says that he remembers specifically that um, they had opened his luggage. The only thing he had in his luggage was Bibles, and they didn't see it. They, they weren't able to tell um, that he had had those Bibles with him. And um, Brother Andrew, um, in one of his uh, trips, in all, in all of his trips, actually, to all these different communist areas, he was never arrested, and he was never caught for carrying any of them. Brother Andrew made it his motto. He says, if I'm going to be arrested for carrying in Bibles, I might as well be arrested for carrying a lot of them in. And it's estimated that he smuggled somewhere in the neighborhood of nearly one million Bibles into these countries that were otherwise closed off to the gospel, which gave him ultimately a book named after him called God's Smuggler. Brother Andrew said, I promise God that as often as I could lay my hands on Bibles, I would bring them to his children of his that were behind the wall that men had built to every country where God had opened the door long enough for me to slip through." And um, Brother Andrew had brought so many Bibles that it it became a running joke of how he was able to get into these unbelievable places that God had opened the door to. And during this time in uh, 1960, the world was trying to be the first, every country was trying to be the first to get to the moon, trying to send people to the moon first and which country would get there. A popular Dutch joke at the time was, what will Russia Russia find if they arrive first to the moon? And the punchline was, Brother Andrew with a load of Bibles. And that that was the truth of it, that Brother Andrew was able to get to places only accessible because God had opened the door to him. He allowed previously closed doors to be opened. He penetrated through this supposedly iron curtain. Brother Andrew said, of himself, the real calling is not a a certain place or career, but just everyday obedience, and that the call is extended to every Christian, not just a select few. As a believer today, God sets before us open doors of evangelistic opportunity right before us. Maybe you're at the grocery store, and you spark up a conversation with the person in aisle three. Maybe you're at work, and a coworker talks to you about something that's going on in their lives, a trial or difficulty they're having. God opens opportunities for us in those situations. God opens the opportunities for us with a maybe a family member who we know doesn't know the Lord. And we've been trying to reach them for years, but there's maybe a life event that's changed and they seem more open to his word, more open and softened to hearing what we have to say. That's an open door that God's opening for us. All throughout our lives, God will open doors of opportunity maybe for a short period of time, maybe for a little bit longer period of time. But God gives us these opportunities to share our faith. Will you, though, be faithful to going through those open doors? Will you be faithful to taking that opportunity, to being bold and sharing in those daily opportunities he gives you? Brother Andrew has said of himself, he didn't consider himself a mighty man of God, but rather just a faithful servant who is willing to be obedient daily to God and to use... Uh, whatever God gave him as time on this earth to serve him. And God did use Brother Andrew. In fact, after he stopped smuggling Bibles in, he ended up doing a lot of um, online presence and started radios, um, started open-door ministry. He reached, though, throughout his lifetime, before he passed away, there were 60 countries that he had reached throughout his lifetime. And it's supposed that millions of souls were saved through his ministry. So as you look at your own life, you know that there are opportunities every day. Has God laid on you, maybe there's a, uh, some kind of ministry that you've been toying with getting involved in, or maybe just involved in church in general, or maybe there's an opportunity at work that you could reach people through, or maybe it's just in your own family, some extended people you know don't know the Lord. Are there opportunities that God's open for you right now even that you have not yet faithfully walked through that door for? God desires us to take every opportunity he gives us to share boldly to those who are lost. And the church in Philadelphia, they were faithful to walking through those open doors, to going through that opportunity that God gave them. In continuing in verse 9, he says, Indeed... I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. With an open door before them, Satan, as he always will, will try to do his best to oppose God's plans. If you share your faith, if you take that open door, you can be sure that you will be met with opposition. One of the biggest persecutors to the work of the Lord is Satan himself. But also, it's interesting that one of the biggest persecutors was also some of the Jewish people who would, you know, they claimed to know the Lord. They claimed to be uh, boldly serving him. They claimed to know him, and yet they were the ones most bitterly opposed to the church in Philadelphia. These were Jewish people from birth that legitimately were Jews, But in reality, they had no inward conversion. There was no true reality to their faith. And uh, instead of serving the Lord, instead of uh, expediting the work of sharing the gospel, they actually tried to hinder the gospel. They tried to persecute not only, as we saw with the church in Smyrna, but also now the church in Philadelphia. They were in, in, in opposition to them. But as we said, any true church who is faithful to God's word, any true church that's dependent upon Him, that loves Him, will be met with satanic opposition. The remainder of uh, the verse nine, and actually going all the way into chapter, all the verse, all the way into verse ten, the Lord gives two promises to the genuine believer. The first promise that the Lord says is, "Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and know that I have loved you." In this, Jesus is promising that believers will one day, there's going to come a day where you're going to be vindicated. There's going to be a day when all those who spoke against you, all those who tried to prevent you from sharing or try to uh, slander your name or your testimony for me, those who um, say your faith is a lie, those who say God doesn't exist, those who mocked you, those who cursed you, will one day recognize that they were wrong. And that all true followers of Christ were right. The book of Esther comes to mind as I think about uh, Haman. If you remember, Haman was a wicked man. His goal was to eliminate the Jewish population. And in a turn of events, um, Haman, who hated Mordecai, who sought to kill him, there came a time, though, when the king, he just couldn't sleep. He was going through the chronicles, he was going through all the things that were written. And he comes across Mordecai's name, and he remembers what Mordecai did for him. And he seeks to reward him in a way. He seeks to find a way to show that I delight in you and to display honor to him. And Mordecai kind of walk, uh, and Haman walks in kind of halfway through the conversation and thinks that he will be the one who's honored. He'll be the one who's praised. He'll be the one who the king delights in, and he uh, ultimately, Haman suggests a parade, a public display of honor, thinking that it was for him, not for Mordecai. And um, through it all, Mordecai, because of the suggestion, is raised to honor. He's vindicated, and he's proclaimed by his enemies as this is the one whom the king delights to honor. Haman was forced to proclaim that the king delighted in him. And so it will be for the believers, those who hate you, those who seek your destruction, those who want really nothing with your gospel message, there's going to come a day where we, everyone will know that you are the one who the King of kings and the Lord of lords delights to honor. They will know that the Lord has loved you. They will know that you are his chosen one. And more than that, there will also come a day, not just for believers, but come a day for the whole world, where at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, glory of, the fa- glory of God the Father. The ones who spoke evil against the Lord will bow down before him and worship him as Lord. What a day that will be. Believers will be vindicated, unbelievers will be humbled, and the Lord will rightfully be worshiped for who he is. It's a promise of vindication for the believers. The second promise that the Lord gives the believers is found in verse 10. It says, Because you have kept my command to, to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The second promise is a deliverance from the tribulation period. Because the church in Philadelphia had remained faithful to him, because they had lived a life following the Lord, because they had kept his His word and not denied his name, they would be kept from a seven-year period called the tribulation. The tribulation, we haven't yet got to that in Revelation, but it will be described in chapters 6 through 19. And this is what's interesting about this promise. It's not just a partial promise of deliverance, but you are going to be, as believers, you'll be delivered out of the tribulation period. This is a promise not just to believers in Philadelphia, but to believers in our day today, that if you know the Lord today, if you have a genuine relationship with him, this is a promise that you will not endure the tribulation period. And we see God's track record of removing his people before destruction takes place. You could look at examples like Noah, how before God sent the flood upon the whole world, he he delivered Noah and his family from that destruction. Or you could think about how Lot and his daughters were delivered from the destruction of fire and brimstone that was upon uh, all of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is a promise that believers will be kept from, will be exempt from enduring the tribulation period. The Lord will rapture his church up to be with him, to take us out of this world before this hour of trial comes upon this whole world. And for a believer, this should be a passage, this should be a promise of great comfort to know that we will be spared from a trial on this earth, that we will be uh, you know, saved from this experience. Because this experience will be a time where God will judge the earth. God will pour out his wrath on those who chose to reject him as Lord and Savior. This will be a time where both Jew and Gentile who have chosen to say no to God, who have chosen to put off his offer of salvation, This is a time where they will greatly suffer as God pronounces judgment after judgment after judgment upon this earth. It is a very fearful time. If you do not know the Lord, this period of time will be. You see, because the tribulation is for those, it's a test for those who, it says, dwell on the earth. That phrase dwell on the earth or earth dwellers is a phrase that Revelation uses nine times. And each time it's used to describe people who aren't saved. People whose permanent residency, whose entire livelihood, all that they have is surrounded by what they have on this earth. They don't look past the end of this life. They just look about what's on this earth. I dwell on this earth. This is as far as it goes. Who knows if anything happens after this life. This is my my lot in life, this earth. That's it. They look no further than this life. All their hopes, all their belongings are here. But a believer is different than that. A believer, though we live on this earth, though we you know, have maybe a home or maybe we have family and other things that we own here, we are just pilgrims living on this earth. We are not, you know, we're in this world. We're not of this world. We're, we're living here for a temporary time, but we know that our, our eternity will be spent in heaven with the Lord. We know that we're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, the Lord is promising us that we will be protected from the tribulation period that will come upon those who dwell on the earth. Jesus will rapture up his church before this tribulation period begin. That's a wonderful promise to hold to. Then in verse 11, the Lord gives the church in Philadelphia a final word of exhortation. He says to them, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming again soon. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. But we know that he will return suddenly and unexpectedly. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? This should be a motivation to us as believers to hold fast, to finish our lives faithfully until the end, that we might receive the crown of victory. My volleyball coach, um, I remember... Um, we were in high school, and we'd be nearing the end. There was one game we had to finish, and if we got this game completed, we would have entered into the playoffs. This was the final game. We were up in volleyball, you best of five. So we were up two sets, and we were in the final one, and we were up by a whole lot of points. We were up by seven or eight points, but in volleyball, that's big. And we began to kind of take our foot off the gas. And... uh, we lost that set. And then you're like, okay, whatever. It's just it's a fluke. Let's, let's, next one, we'll get it, you know. And then we lost the next one. And we just slowly lost more and more points. And then eventually, we were entirely eliminated. But I remember uh, my coach saying to us during those huddles that he would take timeouts for. He would say, all right, guys, we're almost over with this set. Come on. Let's finish strong. And that would be a phrase he would say often, finish strong. And he would remind us of the reward of of championship, a playoff that we could get to if we, you know, if we had finished strong, which obviously we didn't. But uh, in our lifetime, the Lord is saying, finish strong. I have a reward for you for faithfully finishing this life. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't be like we were when we were playing volleyball. (laughs) Finish this life strong. And um, the Lord will faithfully reward you. The Lord is saying again, the finish line is in sight. Hold fast to what you've been doing. And so I ask you, are you living your life each day like at any given moment the Lord could come and take you home to be with Him? Are you faithfully living for Him, or if you're honest with yourself, are you saying, you know, I'm I'm not really prepared for that yet? I wouldn't be fully prepared. If you're a believer, finish strong so that you might receive the victor's crown. If you don't know the Lord, um, if you haven't believed upon him, he is coming quickly. The trials and tribulations will come upon this world. The Lord will uh, judge this world. He will pour out his wrath on those who have not trusted in him. But God is still patient. God is still waiting patiently for every last sinner to turn to him. And this is a warning to you. The tribulation period is not something you want to go through. The Lord is coming again quickly. Do you know him today? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you placed your faith in him today? He is coming quickly. Today is the day of salvation. Do not put it off any longer because your eternal soul is at stake. Jesus, again, is coming soon. In verse 12, now the church in Philadelphia has offered a special reward. In verse 12, he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. The overcomer speaks of a genuine believer, someone who has placed their eternal hope in the Lord, and they placed their hope on his payment on that cross for their sins. The overcomer is given really uh, two promises, but the second promise is multi-part. Uh, the, the first promise that he gives him is that he will be made a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. So pillars... Um, it's kind of interesting as I was looking at this. pillars are a picture of strength and stability. Picture, pillars are a picture of permanent security. The entire heavenly city is considered a temple, and the Philadelphian believers will be permanently residing there as a pillar in the temple. If we remember what we said about the history of Philadelphia, they were plagued by major earthquakes. On many occasions, all these structures around them were ruined, except the pillars. There was nothing left standing but the pillars. And the Lord promises that his people will stand when all else has fallen, because they are secured to a solid foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. This promise is one of security. It's one of strength, one of permanent residency. The second part to this is that uh, he says, not only will he be a pillar, it's that he shall go out no more. Remember, we said every time an earthquake would hit, They would scatter. They would run away from the area because it was crumbling down upon them. They would flee to safety. They would come back. It would be rebuilt. They would then have another earthquake. They would scatter again, constantly going in and out, in and out of the city to a a safer area. And so the people were often reminded, as they heard this phrase, this would be a comfort to them because this promise says that, you know what, no longer will you have to come and go in and out of the city Forever you will be in the presence of your Savior. You're never going to need to leave this place. You'll never need to disperse because an earthquake or some other natural disaster hits it. Heaven is a place of safety, of joy. It's a place of permanent residency for the believer. And the second promise that he gives them is that the overcomer, the true believer, will have three names written on him. The first name he'll have written on him is the name of my God. God's name will be written on us, and that shows eternal ownership. He is saying that we belong to him. We are his. In the days of the Philadelphian believers, it was at the time a symbol of honor to inscribe someone's name on a pillar, and it was an honor to them. And so the name being written on us is a symbol of ownership and a symbol of honor. The name of the New Jerusalem that says, which comes out of heaven... From my God. This is a reference to a, a later chapter in Revelation. This is a reference to Revelation 21 and 22, speaking of a future eternal city that will come out of heaven. This is going to be a literal city, just as God will create a new heaven and new earth, he will make a new Jerusalem after the tribulation period is over, after God has defeated his enemies, after earth has passed away. It is a place where God will dwell with his redeemed people. They will be his people. He will be their God. It's a place of unimaginable blessing, a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, a place that every believer has to look forward to. This inscription signifies eternal citizenship in heaven's capital city, the the new Jerusalem. The third inscription is the new name of the Lord Jesus. And, you know, curiosity sparks our minds as we hear this, you know, well, what is that new name? And, you know, we could speculate all we want, but the Bible just simply doesn't tell us. You know, we'll find that as we go through Revelation that it gives us enough information to know, to to know what's to come, but it doesn't satisfy our every curiosity. And um, all we know at this time is that the Lord will be given a new name that is yet to be revealed, and one day... We will be face-to-face where we will see him eternally in, in his presence. Um, so all these, all these names, they are all speak of uh, the believer being identified as belonging to all three things. If you think about when a person tries to enter in the United States and they try and go through the legal process of it, it's kind of a tedious process. You have, you know, these documents you have to send Um, You have all these kind of um, hours you meet with different people in the consulate. It's a long process. But at the end, when you finally got everything signed off, when you finally come in, they have this naturalization ceremony for them. And at the ceremony, they give you your paperwork that says, you know, um, with the seal of the United States on that document, sealing that this person is now a citizen of the United States. And they're given benefits that come along with being a citizen of the United States. And then on that document, there's a signature of a federal agent who says, no, this indeed is true. This person is who they say they are. We do give them the seal of approval. This person is now considered a United Citizen or United States citizen. And, and these marks on this piece of paper that you get at these citizenship uh, ceremonies, it, it, there comes with a sense of pride, you know. It's, you, you see a lot of people. As you watch the ceremonies, they're, they're proud to be an American. They're proud to be associated with the red, white, and blue. You know, they, they want to belong to this country. And um, in, in that ceremony, you're, you're basically saying, my documents have been signed. I am who I say I am. And America and all of its entities sign off me as well. I belong to them. And if we can be proud about you know, a country that we live in, here on this earth, and if we can be proud about the benefits we have of that, then how much more, to an even greater extent, how awesome is it to know that we belong to the Lord, to know that we are citizens, not of just America, we're citizens of heaven as a believer. We, God writes his name on us. God says that this is my child. God says, um, he is mine. These names that the Lord promises to write on the believers are marks of identification because they show who we are and what we belong to. We belong to him. And I think I don't realize realize often just the privilege it is to be uh, known as a citizen of heaven, to be known as belonging to him. He calls me one of his. He tells me I belong to him. Finally, the Lord concludes this letter by saying in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, the faithful church, the church that represents a time in history after the Reformation where there is great revivals happening, where there is modern missions movements happening. The reason that this time period was so effective in spreading the gospel and seeing souls converted was because they walked through that open door that God gave them. They made the most of the opportunities that God handed them. They were obedient. They did not shy away from being bold when God opened a the door. They seized that opportunity. And it's my prayer that we would seize opportunities that God gives us either as a church or that we would seize the opportunities that it gives us as an individual. The Lord is coming again soon. He's going to reward those who finish strong, who hold fast. Focus on each day. Is the Lord giving me an opportunity? Or you can even pray. Believe me, he will open the door for you. If you pray for an opportunity, the Lord will open a door for you. Say, Lord, let me speak to someone today. Give me an opportunity at work. Give me an opportunity with my, my family. Give me an opportunity at the grocery store, at the park. And when he gives you that opportunity, walk through it. Don't be fearful. I I can't even tell you how many times the Lord has opened the door and I've shied away from it. Or I've said, I'm a little busy right now. Or I'm supposed to go to this thing and I don't really have time to really talk to them. Be faithful in the opportunities he gives you. Walk through that door. When he gives you the chance, and usually it's at the most unopportune times, you would think. But that's when God usually opens doors for us. Look at it as though that person, their eternal soul is at stake. You have the opportunity to share with them the truth. Use your opportunity. As you come to the end of this age, we should have this burden for other people's souls a burden that we know what's happening. We know what's to come. We know as we go through Revelation, we are about to see what will happen to those who do not know Christ. And we have this burden, we have this obligation, this responsibility to share with the lost world what's to come. Seize the opportunity he gives you to share the gospel. Seize the opportunity to share the truth of his love for this world. And be like the Philadelphian believers. Finish strong, walk through that open door, and live your life in light of his soon return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just so encouraged by um, just seeing this faithful church, this church who was able to do mighty things because you opened that door. Lord, we pray that each day that we would take the open doors you present us. We pray that, Lord, we would be faithful until the end, sharing with others, telling them the good news of the gospel. And, Lord, we look forward to that day that you come and rapture us home with you. Lord, we just pray if anyone doesn't know you, if anyone hasn't placed their faith in you, that they would come to a saving knowledge of you. We pray that, Lord, they would trust in you for their salvation. Avoid the the tribulation period. Avoid all the suffering that goes along with it and have a eternal relationship with you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.